the, then the thing that really sets me off is, well, once we have a vaccine, then everything will go back, back to, to normal. normal. Yeah. And I say, you mean like the flu vaccine that's 8% effective? Doesn't work. I catch if the I flu. A, if I had a brake pad manufacturing company for cars and my brake pads were 8% effective, I would be out of business. George Floyd was not taken out because he was black. George Floyd was taken out because he was owed major drug money by Derek Shaver. When you're making vaccines that are 8% effective for the flu that you have to change every year, which, by the way, give most people that take them the flu. Food. And you're going to tell me that this new, and they can't sue, you can't sue them for this right. without going through the VAERS court, which is a joke. And you're going to tell me that once we have a untested, brand new rush through vaccine, then everything is going to go back to normal. Good luck with that. I'll tell you what, they're going to test it in Africa like they're doing. Kill a bunch of Africans, pay them off $1,000 per person, which is the maximum that they have to spend if they kill somebody. So they already know that because it's way cheaper to kill them there than kill them here. found out what the Chinese Communist Party, the Red Dragon, is doing to these people and have been doing to these people for the last 20 years in China, sending hundreds and thousands of innocent Falun Gong practitioners, Uyghur Muslims, house Christians, and Tibetan Buddhists. Particularly, 95% of um, the victims are Falun Gong practitioners to be state-mandated hospitals, concentration camps, death camps, military facilities, uh, military facilities run by the Chinese military at the behest of the, of the highest-ranking officials of the Chinese Communist Party to create a illegal sanctions forced organ harvesting business hey how's it going everybody welcome back to another episode of the truth defender podcast we are coming to you from the greatest country in the world deep in the heart of the lone star state dallas texas i'm your host paul aguilar really appreciate you guys stopping in if you guys are watching us on youtube make sure you guys hit that subscribe button um, and hit that like button as well also make sure you guys hit that bell icon so you don't miss an episode in the future um if you guys are on the go and you want to check us out you guys can find us on spotify google Podcasts, apple Podcasts, as well as iHeartRadio at truth defender podcast uh, you guys can follow us on social media as well we have our twitter account uh, at defender podcast as well as instagram at truth defender podcast uh, you can catch us on facebook and rumble as well we have all those linked down below as well as our discord um, if you guys want to send us any questions or comments for myself or our guests or if you have any guest or topic recommendations you can send those to our email at the truth defender at 1776 our next guest is Paul Rimesh, graduated from Weber State University in Ogden, Utah, with a bachelor's degree in forensic science and a minor in photography in 1997, and with a master's in criminal justice in 2019. Uh, he has worked as a crime scene investigator for Weber Metro CSI for the past 23 years, and is a three-time recipient of the Weber County Sheriff's Office Medal of Merit. Awesome. Paul has certifications through the International Association for Investigations in Latent Fingerprint Examination and Forensic Photography. He is currently serving as Utah's representative to the Western Identification Network Latent Fingerprint Committee. Uh, Paul's first novel, uh, The Lost Stones, was published in 2011, followed by a sequel, The Lost Mine, in 2015. His third book, Fingerprints and Phantoms, True Tales of Law Enforcement Encounters with the Paranormal and the Strange, came out in 2018. 
Uh, Paul has also published scientific papers in the Journal of Forensic Identification and Ancient American Magazine. He is an adjunct professor at Weber State University and is active in the training of law enforcement officers and crime scene investigators. Paul, how are you doing, sir? Oh, good. Uh, thanks for having me on your uh, your podcast. I'm excited. Yeah, absolutely. We are excited to have you. Um, yeah, so there's a whole lot, there's a whole lot going on um, as far as working with law enforcement as well. How did did that whole thing start? Did you were you in law enforcement before? Or how did that whole thing get started? No, I I've I'm this I'm in the civilian side of it, and so. Um, you know, as I'm sure you're aware, there's like in law enforcement, there's the sworn and the non-sworn. And in, in Utah, at least, most places have their crime scene people and their forensic science, science people as non-sworn civilians. And so, yeah, it's uh, something I've always kind of been interested in, uh, fingerprints and forensic science and different things like that. And when I first uh, uh, was in, graduated from high school and went into college, I wanted to be an archaeologist, and uh, you, as you can maybe tell from some of the some of my writings and some of my stuff, I love I love archaeology and ancient uh, civilizations and stuff. And so, uh, but yeah, one of one of my friends, uh, his dad was in the FBI, and I kind of you know as I got a little older, started thinking, oh, maybe that'd be kind of interesting. Law enforcement hadn't really thought of it, but then another one of my friends his father was in forensic science. And I was like, Oh, and he told me, described what he did. And I thought, Oh, that's what I want to do. And so, yeah, I, I transferred from the university of Utah to Weber state because they had at the time, the only forensic science program in the state of Utah. And uh, yeah, I got my degree there. And then I was fortunate enough to get a job just very soon after graduation with the Weber County Sheriff's office. And yeah, I've been there ever since. Uh, it's yeah, I'm approaching 24 years on the job, and it's it's crazy. <laughs> yeah, right. I wonder how I've lasted so long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it can be a little bit intense, I'm sure. Um, you know, especially dealing with crime scenes and stuff like that. Um, I worked. We worked a little bit with. Uh, well, I was Navy law enforcement, so we worked a little bit with like CSI and stuff like that overseas. So we kind of, I kind of understand the gist. Um, but yeah, I mean, I can only imagine law enforcement and crime scenes, things like that, it, it can get pretty intense as far as what you guys have to see and stuff like that. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, Utah is pretty mellow compared to most, you know, or to, you know, big city areas in the country. So, you know, we you, you hear about New York or Baltimore, places like that. I mean, they have hundreds of homicides sure. every year, you know, and, and here in Weber County, you know, we might have you know, eight to 10 to 15 or something, you know, so it's not like we're super intense here, but yeah, in the span of 24 years, I've seen a lot of terrible things and a lot of gruesome things. And uh, yeah, it kind of in, uh, in the more recent years, I've become a little bit more interested in, you know, kind of mental health survival tactics for crime scene people. And I've done a few, you know, done a little bit of research on it, done a few lectures at some of our professional conferences and, Cause yeah, it's a, it takes a toll and it's, it's kind of, it's kind of not as understood because uh, you know, for, for our officers who, you know, we're going out and doing the traffic stops and the kicking down the doors and all that stuff, 
they have a very acute form of stress, you know, where in the moment someone's trying, might be trying to kill them or is trying to kill them. And, you know, very stressful, very hard to deal with, but it's acute. It's, it happens and then it gets over. But for forensic people, we have more chronic stress. And kind of the best example is there was a few years ago, there was a quadruple murder suicide that happened in our jurisdiction. A, a guy killed his family and the officers went in and they found the, the, the dead bodies and which is, you know, very traumatic. And, you know, they didn't know what they had, very traumatic, but then, you know, they're sent home. And then it's like, all right, CSI, you go in and spend the next day in with those dead bodies and look at them, you know, for the next 24 hours and do this crime scene. And so, you know, we didn't have to find them, but you have to look at it for the next day. And so it's, it's those kinds of stresses for forensic people are, there's only now in the past few years research being done on it. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but I guess I've been able to, you know, make it so far. <laughs> yeah, thankfully. Yeah, I mean, it's obviously inspired you to write books about it. I mean, like you mentioned that uh, 2015 book, uh, Fingerprints and Phantoms, was that just kind of like tales of cases you've had over the years or how did that whole thing play out? Well, that's, so that's a really fun book because um, it's basically uh, ghost stories that cops and CSI acquaintances of mine have had. Right. And so that maybe, you know, some other time we could come. I don't know if you do ghost stories on your uh, podcast, but we should yeah. <laughs> we should talk more about that book some other time. But it, it's it basically came about where I one of the things I love about law enforcement is the storytelling culture. Um, I ever since I was a little kid, I loved campfire stories. I love funny stories. And in law enforcement, there's a lot of downtime. And and, you know, you being in the military, you had the that experience too i'm sure where you know on tv it makes it seem like law enforcement and csi and military it's always action 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 but in reality there's a lot of downtime and you're waiting for a search warrant or you're waiting at the courthouse for court or you're you know it's a night shift and nothing's going on and you tell so there's lots of storytelling that goes on and just one halloween i just started asking people like hey have you ever had anything that weird happened to you or have you seen any ghosts or anything like that just kind of to be in the spirit of um you know the season and right. just a lot of people started telling me stories and you know some people were really uh really uh ready and willing to tell stories other people thought you might be teasing them but then when they thought you were serious and so just yeah over the course of several years i would just collect stories and then my wife was like, Hey, you should write those down. And I'm like, good idea. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that, that's, that was a really fun book, but yeah, there's, there's some, because we work with death and we work at nights and we have to go into cemeteries and uh, isolated buildings and different things. Like there's a lot of weird stuff that happens to cops and CSIs. Right. Yeah. I very much, I can relate. It's a lot, a whole lot of hurry up and wait. And um, in that time, especially like in the military as well, I mean, the stories you get as well it's i mean all kinds of stories but yeah so so i guess we can kind of jump in here to i mean you mentioned prior that you kind of wanted to be like an archaeologist before did that kind of set you up as far as looking at the aztecs or how did that whole process you know come about well yeah and um i've 
like I like I said, and you brought up, I I wanted to be an archaeologist when I was a kid, and people say, yeah, it's because you loved Raiders of the Lost Ark as a movie, and like, okay, guilty, you know. Sure. I I like to wear vests because Han Solo had vests too. So what? Harrison Ford, he <laughs> he, so such an influence. But but yeah, I've I've always been really interested in it. But I think my interest in the Aztecs and their kind of ancient and even hidden history started when I was a Boy Scout. And so uh, I would, we would go on camping trips and I had this scoutmaster named Larry Holloway and he was the coolest guy in the world. He was the best scoutmaster. And we would go camping in what are called the Uinta Mountains here in Utah. And um, for you and, and your listeners, if you've ever heard of Skinwalker Ranch, um, Skinwalker Ranch is just outside of the Uinta Mountains. So that's really close there. So there's lots of <laughs> lots of interesting stuff. Um, David Politis, one of his uh, disappearance clusters, is in the Uinta Mountains too. <laughs> so it's it's quite an interesting place. But when when we were camping there, Larry would tell us stories about that in the Uinta Mountains there were hidden gold mines, and there was great treasure in these mountains, and that many people thought that Montezuma's lost treasure was in those mountains but that these mines were protected by the members of the Ute Nation. There's uh, the Ute people have a large reservation right there in the Uinta Basin. And he told us that, that the Ute people were protecting these mines. And so I grew up hearing these stories, you know, as a Boy Scout in those mountains, hearing this stuff. And so it became a point of, of interest to me to kind of study that up later on and do some research on it. And that's it became the topic of my second book, The Lost Mine. And, but there's so much, which is, a, which is a fiction book, but there's so much hidden, interesting history about the Aztecs. Then we just, and, and their connection with this area up here in Utah that we just don't realize. It's, it's fascinating. Yeah, it's, that's, that is interesting. I had never heard, of, you know, that there were like Aztec or anything to do with Aztecs kind of that far up, like into the, in the U.S., you know, obviously you only hear about the Aztecs down in Mexico and stuff like that. And, you know, one of the, the biggest questions you hear about them is, is like, where did they go? Obviously, because it seems to be that they just kind of disappeared into thin air. And I mean, you still have like ancestors and things like that that still exist in Mexico. Um, but I mean, for the most part, it's just kind of like they just disappeared off the face of the earth. Um, and it's just interesting just to hear that they would be that far up you know here in the states obviously back then it wasn't the u.s but um that they would have made that trek up that far to where they would end up out you know like out in utah as well um but so i mean i just wanted to kind of get maybe theories as or anything you've heard because i mean you've you hear like a lot of stories as to where they went or why they their civilization kind of collapsed uh, do you have like any kind of theories as to why that happened well with the aztecs it, it's pretty clear what happened to them because um the spanish came and basically wiped them out and so you know as opposed to some of the other civilizations there the maya and the toltec and the the olmec and different things the 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 aztec well it's what there's so many interesting things about them because you know, we think about the Aztec as being a really ancient civilization, but they're actually kind of not. 
because they the the Aztec came to Mexico and founded their their capital, which I'm I'm so terrible at pronouncing these things, but uh, Tino Tino Chitlan was was their was their capital city there in Lake um or Lake what what it was it. It's the lake where Mexico City is. So Texacaco, I think the lake is, was okay. the lake where they had it. But so the, the, the capital of the Aztecs was founded in 1325 AD. And it, it's a really interesting thing that, that Oxford University in England is actually older than the Aztec Empire. So the, the Oxford, they started teaching at Oxford in 1096, and then it officially became a university in 1249 and then the Aztec capital was founded in 1325 and so even though we think you know we think about the Aztec being really ancient their the founding of their their capital was actually kind of in you know not modern times but in in historical times and the, the city that they founded the Tenochtitlan was an, an amazing place and and it's one of those things we we often it's in in the Americas we we so often kind of discount what the indigenous people did like up in North America the the mounds and the cities and the marvelous things that were here you know we discount them and we we don't think much of you know all oh, the Aztecs you know Spanish wiped them or whatever but I mean their their city held over two hundred thousand people. In Europe, there was only three cities that would even rival Tenochtitlan, and that was Paris and Venice and Constantinople. Every other city in Europe about that time was smaller than than Tenochtitlan. And so the Aztecs, they, they, had did, they did just amazing things. It was a beautiful city on an island. There were causeways going across it. There were hanging gardens and floating gardens and it was just it was just a marvel and then yeah the spanish came and kind of squashed it but what's what's interesting though and what going back to the aztecs connection to the continental or you know up to the u.s is that even mainstream scholars will tell you they don't know where the aztec came from hmm. and they they will you, you look and you read different accounts and different textbooks and they say oh they might have come from like the border of uh, America or you know USA and Mexico from that area and other people have all these speculations but they really don't know but when you ask when you ask the Aztecs themselves they told you exactly where they came from they said before they came to Tenochtitlan they lived up north in a place called Azatlan. And when they they asked about Azatlan, they said, well, it's an island in a lake. And so now you have a connection to, well, that's where they built, when they finally settled down, I mean, they had wandered around for a while. And when the Aztecs finally settled down, they built their city on an island in a lake. And what's interesting is while they were looking for a place, they had the Aztec had a prophecy that they were supposed to build their city um, where they would see an eagle with a snake in its mouth on top of a cactus. And so they, they got to Lake Texaco, and there is a cactus with 
an eagle on it with a snake in its mouth. Now, can you think of where you might have seen that motif before? Uh, it's an eagle Mexican flag. Yeah. Right, it's the Mexican flag and their, their coat of arms. It's still something that exists today, but that comes from the, the Aztec and the founding of their capital city. It was a that was a prophecy. But so, but back to Azatlan, they said, well, Azatlan's up north and it was an island in it was an island in a lake. And when you look at the word Azatlan, it has two different meanings to it. And so one of the meanings was land of herons. So the large uh, bird that go, lives in wetlands and goes fishing. So land of herons or land of whiteness. And so what's interesting about that is there is a place north from Mexico where there's a large island in the middle of a large lake that fits both of those descriptions. And that is the Great Salt Lake and a place called Antelope Island, which I was actually just at yesterday when hiking out there. And so if you look at the Great Salt Lake, there's even though the lake is really salty and it's so salty that there's no fish or anything in it, there are wetlands all the way around the Great Salt Lake. And there are large populations of herons that live there. And then when you look at the other meaning of the word land of whiteness, all the way surrounding the Great Salt Lake, especially out to the west, are vast salt flats. Think of the Bonneville, I don't know if you've ever seen the Bonneville salt flats, but a lot of TV commercials are filmed there. Have you, have you seen the movie Independence Day? Right, right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where Jeff Goldblum and uh, Will Smith land and they're walking across. So that, that's the salt flats. And there's a lot of area out there where just for miles and miles you have salt and it's very white. The ground is just pure white. So both of those, both of those, um, you know, the herons and the land of whiteness, they both could easily fit then the Great Salt Lake and the area around it. And then you have another connection that the Aztecs language is very, very related to the language spoken by the Ute and the Shoshone and some of the other groups that are up here in the Great Basin. The language is very similar. similar. And so you start to have some of these connections where, I mean, scholars, mainstream scholars themselves don't know where the Aztecs came from, and you start to see some of these correlations. And, but there's another really interesting correlation. Um, it's actually uh, the article I did write for Ancient American Magazine was about, so it was about a very interesting correlation between the Aztecs and some of the peoples, the indigenous people who lived up in this area. And it, and it was, it was a few years back, they had been excavating some caves out on, not on Antelope Island itself, but very near just kind of surrounding the Great Salt Lake. And the, the people, the archeologists have called the promontory culture. And the promontory culture existed around the Great Salt Lake um, in like the uh, 1100s and 1200s. That's kind of when the heyday of the um, promontory culture was. And that's before the Aztecs arrived when they did. And so there could be this link there, but there was um, the article that, that I saw that piqued my interest in this is they found 
a lot of little gaming pieces. And and the headline was was really cute. It was like, oh, the archaeologists have found a prehistoric casino by the Great Salt Lake or whatever. But they found these these split reeds or like sticks that had been kind of cut in pieces. So they were kind of flat, but rounded at the bottom. And they had all these grooves and notches cut in it. And the archaeologists speculated that those were used for gaming purposes as a kind of a dice or a kind of a game. Right. Well, it turns out that the Aztec had a very similar game that they played, and it's still played in um, very remote, kind of among remote Aztec-speaking people still in Mexico. They play this very similar game. And so you have kind of links all over the place. You know, it's it's not... It's not definitive, obviously, you know, it's, you don't close the book on it, but, but there's all these links that say, yeah, maybe the Aztec did come from as far north as the Great Basin region. It's, I mean, that would definitely make sense. It would, it would make sense as far as how they were able to, I guess, live in an area like in Mexico where there's just a bunch of swamps and stuff like that, especially if they came from those salt flats, they'd be able to make do with little to no like water. I mean, obviously they lived like in the swamp, so there'd be water everywhere, but it, it would kind of make sense as to how they would be able to just kind of flourish in areas where nothing else would, would be able to. Um, that's, that's interesting. It's just, just to think, I mean, it's just, so like nobody knows where they went really. I mean, I mean, you know, like you said, the Spanish came, you know, stuff like that happened. But it's it's just kind of like people still think that they they kind of vanish into thin air and they, you know, why that their civilizations collapse, things like that. Um, but then also, where did they come from is like another huge question, which makes it like even more interesting because it's just kind of, you know, maybe they just appeared out of nowhere, which is what it seems like. But, you know, obviously, if they, you know, maybe they branched off from native americans at the time maybe it's like another subset of, of natives at that time um you know they just kind of made their way down into mexico um but it's just i mean there's so many weird unexplained things that happened with the aztecs um i mean obviously one of the the biggest ones is their i guess like what, what, what would be considered like soccer and basketball put together like their little game that they had where after whoever would lose, they would sacrifice them as well. Or even, you know, maybe even the winners as well, they would they would go ahead and sacrifice them as well. Um, would, it, would it be or Ulamalitzli would be the game, the Aztec ball game that they play? Um, I think that I think I'm getting the name right. Um, but even to this to this day, nobody like really knows how it's played or you know how they used to play it before but they find all, you know, like all these ball courts all over Mexico everywhere. And it's just like one of, it just adds more mystery to it as well. Um, which is very interesting. <laughs> I, I've always wanted to not only go just to see like the ruins as well, but just to kind of figure out how they would go about playing the game as well, which is even more interesting. Yeah. There, there's so much, there's so much that we don't understand. Well, what what's what I think is fascinating is, you know, there's you have some really good historical accounts from the Spanish when they went there and some of the friars chronicled. 
And then, but then there's this gap. And then there's interesting things that kind of happen that you might be able to fill in the middle of the gap as to where they went. And so, I mean, the story is, is that, you know, the Spanish, the Spanish arrived, um, Cortez arrived in um, 1519. And he was, he was out for gold, you know, he wanted to find gold, he wanted to find riches. I mean, he was the ultimate soldier of fortune. Well, the, the Aztecs had this, this tradition or this belief that, that one of their gods, Quetzalcoatl, was going to come back one day, and he was going to have a light skin, and he was going to have a beard, and he was going to come from the east, and he was going to come at a certain time. Well, Cortez shows up almost on cue, like around the time that he that Quetzalcoatl was supposed to come back, and and he was bearded, and he came from the east, and he was lighter skinned, and and so, but <laughs> yeah, he and and it's it's very you know you, you hear people really simplify it like oh Cortez was just able to defeat the Aztecs because you know they thought he was a god, and you know they really simplified, and it makes it kind of seem like the Aztecs were dumb, but they weren't. They they were not dumb at all, but they you know were like unsure, and you know it it, it didn't take them too long to figure out that he wasn't a god that he was a ruthless dude but it, at first they were unsure enough and the, the their their emperor montezuma was unsure enough that they were able to kind of get get a foothold in there and then a lot of the other groups that the aztecs had conquered because the aztecs themselves were extremely ruthless right. um there's just just terrible stories of human sacrifice and i mean they were very ruthless and so there were all these groups that they had conquered who were like, Hey, maybe these new guys can help us get rid of the Aztecs. And so, I mean, the, the Spanish had some local allies, but so um, they Montezuma goes to Tenochtitlan and he puts, or Cortez goes to the capital. He basically puts Montezuma under house arrest and he sends his men out looking for the treasure because there's tales of fabulous gold and, I mean, the Aztecs had even brought, met, tried to meet Cortez on the way to Chinochitlan to bring him gold, to pacify him, but that just made him want him more. And so, so he gets there and he he demands that the Aztec bring all their gold out. And so they give him some, but you know, like I said, they're not stupid. They they, you know, they're not sure. Like, um, is this guy good? But uh, no, he you know he seems pretty slimy. So they don't give him all the gold. And the story says that they hid all of their treasure, most of their treasure, in these hidden vaults underneath different buildings in the city. And there's account, there's there's written accounts of some of these uh, Spaniard spies who actually went in and saw these treasure vaults with just gold and jewels and ingots of gold and silver piled up, just, just immense wealth and treasure beyond just their wildest imagination but the Aztec were hiding it. Well, Cortez was about ready to tear the city apart when he caught word or was, was notified that another Spaniard was, had come to Mexico with an army to take it over from Cortez. So Cortez had to kind of break off what he was doing in, in Tenochtitlan to go fight and, you know, conquer this other Spanish guy who was coming to take over. Well, here's where, 
you know, these this is all historical to this point. And it is said that in the break when Cortez left, um, that the Montezuma ordered that hundreds of porters, hundreds of guys would take this jewel, all the jewels and the gold and the treasure, and take it up north to the land of their ancestors. And they had they had a story, you know, that that you know about Ozatlan, you know, that was the land of their ancestors. And they also said there were seven sacred caves up there. And so uh, a trusted advisor of, of Montezuma and hundreds of porters packed up all this treasure and head up the, headed up the trail and to the land of their ancestors north. And so Cortez wins the battle. He comes back and he finds out that the treasure had all disappeared, that it was sent up north to the land of their ancestors. And then there was more battles and, and you know, lots of different stuff. And Montezuma was eventually stoned to death by his own people. And just it went bad from the Aztecs from there. And the Spanish took him over and destroyed the city and just horrible tragedies ensued. But the Spanish never forgot that all this treasure had been sent north. And, and so a lot of people treat the concept of Montezuma's lost treasure as if it's a myth. But there are these historical accounts of it being there, being in the city, and then being taken north. And the Spanish sure didn't think it was a myth. They spent the next uh, hundred years trying to find it again. There were all these multiple, multiple expeditions to go find this place where all this treasure had taken. Now, in the meantime, the Spanish started to mine gold themselves. And it's it's really sad. We well, okay. Let me let me back up. So, in as kids in Utah going through school, we were taught that the first European to ever set foot in Utah was Father Escalante. He was a, a Spanish friar that that came up north and and he with his group and he was the first European to come and explore Utah and all these different things. Well, that's not necessarily true because when Father Escalante got to what is now the area around Utah Lake, he found Spanish markings on trees from the miners because different miners and different groups, they went up the old trail of the Aztecs trying to find where this treasure went. And while, you know, while they were at it, they started to try to mine on their own right. They would dig mines. And in order to do that, they would enslave the local indigenous population to work in their mines for them. And they had this, they had this book, and it was like the how-to book to mine gold in the new world. And it was in Spanish. Can't remember exactly what it was called, but it it had a terrible section in it where it basically said, it'll cost you the lives of about 20 slaves to get one pound of gold or something like there was this this terrible calculus written right in the book of like, you will work, you know, 20, 20 slaves to death in order to get this much gold. And so they were all over, they were all over uh, the Southwest and the Great Basin looking for gold and mining. And yeah, and so when Father Escalante gets to Utah 
in Utah Lake area, he he writes in his journal, oh, I saw the the symbols written on the trees from Spanish miners. And so he himself says he was not the first um, Spanish person to get up into Utah. But, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, they don't like that history, mainstream scholars, or if it's just easier to say he was the first one or whatever. But so where it gets interesting, and this is where this is where the, the stories that I was told around the campfire start to intersect with the stories of Montezuma's lost treasure. So there was a Ute chief and his name, I can't pronounce his Ute name, but when he was young, when he was born, he was, he was given the name of Iron Twister because he was very strong. And so when Iron Twister was a baby, his father went and dipped him in the waters of Spirit Lake in the Uintas. And Spirit Lake, is, we know where that is today. That's still there. Um, and so he, he, he dipped him in the waters of Spirit Lake. And this place was very, very sacred, was, is very sacred to the Ute people. And they believed that God, who they called Towats, uh, was, that was where he hung out. That was one of his places where his spirit was very intense, was at this lake, Spirit Lake. So, you know, he was dipped, he was dipped in there as a child and, you know, he had different things going on and, and his um, Iron Twister's grandfather had actually been killed by the Spanish who had come up into Utah and they knew that he knew where some gold was. And so they basically tortured him to death. So he would tell them where gold was. And so, um, you know, he knew of the Spanish and he, you know, he has this history with them. Well, as he got a little older he went back to um, Spirit Lake to have a, a vision quest and he fasted and he chanted and he sang and he, he prayed and he did this for several days. And finally, he had a vision where the great spirit, Towats, came to him and said, all right, I'm going to change your name from Iron Twister to Keeper of the Yellow Metal. Okay. And you know this, this is in this is in his account. You know this 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 isn't some legend. This is what the the pe the settlers who knew him wrote down. This is the story from his own mouth. And so, uh, keeper of the yellow metal was Yakera. That's the the Ute word for it. And the the trappers and stuff that knew him they couldn't really pronounce Yakera very well, so it became Walker. So he became known as Walker to, to the different trappers. Well, when, when Chief Walker, when Yakara had this vision, the great spirit said, all right, I'm going to make you the keeper of the yellow metal. You're going to be the protector of these caves filled with gold and also the treasures of the ancient ones. And so at that point, you're like, okay, so if the, if they, Aztec were really from the Great Basin, from the Great Salt Lake, which the Uinta Mountains are just right next door. Right. If they were really from there and they left and went up, you know, to flee the Spanish, went up up the trail of the ancient ones to the where their ancestors were from, is the treasure, are these caves that Chief Walker was made the protector of, is that Montezuma's lost treasure? Is this the treasure that the porters took out of Tino Chitlan and moved up north. 
So it's a it's a very interesting, very interesting connection. But it gets even more interesting because there there's there's historical substantiation that this treasure this gold. Because what happened is is during during this vision that that Walker had, the Great Spirit told him, okay, so pretty soon some white men are going to come into your area, and you can give them some of the gold. The I, you know, the Great Spirit told Walker, I give you permission to give these people some of the gold because they're going to use it for a good purpose. And the Great Spirit called these white men that were going to come the high hats. That's that's how the Great Spirit described this to Walker. And so, you know, he comes out of his vision and he's you know, his name's changed and he, you know, has this new purpose in life. And so he's like, okay, well, who who are these high hats? You know, who are these people going to be? And so he's like, well, is it the Spanish? Because sometimes the friars wore tall, pointy hats. And, but he was like, nah, I don't think, I don't, because the, the Indians of the Great Basin, the, the native people there did not love the Spanish. <laughs> they had a big history of slavery and working them to death and all these things. So he's just like, no, nah, I, I don't think that is who I'm supposed to give this gold to. And so um, then he, uh, mountain men, trappers, you know, started to come into the area. And he was like, oh, are these the guys that I'm supposed to give the gold to? You know, they don't really wear high hats, you know. But when he started to talk to them, they didn't care anything. They didn't care any, about anything except for beaver pelts and trapping. You know, they, they weren't interested in gold at all. And so he just kind of, well, it's not those guys. And so he was just kind of at a loss. He didn't really know. He didn't really know what was going on. Well, a few years later, he became very ill and everybody thought he was going to die. And so they took him to one of the forts that the trappers had. And the, the they took him and said, well, can you guys help him? We think he's going to die. And he just laid in this coma for days and days. And they were kind of getting ready to, to bury him. You know, they thought he was going to die. And all of a sudden he snaps out of it and he's perfectly healthy. And he's like, Oh, I had another vision. And everybody's like, Oh, okay. Well, what, what happened? And so in his vision, his, his spirit floated up out of his body in the, in the, uh, in the fort and he floated up over the mountains and he floated up over the great plains and he looked down on the plains and there were uh, covered wagons crossing the plains. And the great spirit said, those are the people that you're supposed to give some of the gold to. And he's like, look at their hats. And they had kind of top hats, you know, little taller hats like that. And he's like, those are the people you're supposed to give it to. And specifically this guy right here. And in, in the vision Walker was shown one specific guy that he was supposed to give some of the gold to. So he's like, great. Well, who those people were that he saw were the Mormon pioneers that were coming to settle Utah. And so several years later, and it was in, I think it was 1849, um, Walker and a group of his, his people rode into Salt Lake City and requested a meeting with the great Mormon chief, who was Brigham Young. And so they, he goes in and he has this meeting and he's like, I want to meet with you. I want to smoke a peace pipe with you so our people can live in peace. And so he meets, Brigham Young meets with Walker and, and his delegation. And there's a group of, you know, important Mormons there that were, are with Brigham Young. 
And Walker's looking around the group and he sees one guy, Isaac Morley. And he's like, you, I've seen you before in a vision and we're meant to be friends. And so they're like, okay. And so kind of long, long story short, I mean, there's, there's, there's more to the story than this, but they eventually get to the point where Walker, the, um, Isaac Morley and a different group of people, they move down to live amongst the Ute people in an area. And, you know, he comes to him one day and says, Hey, um, I, w- I had a vision a few years ago where I was told I was supposed to give you some gold. <laughs> and so how would you like, how would you like that? Like, Oh, okay. Well, it's interesting. And it was very timely for the Mormon people because they, you know, they came out to escape persecution. They established their, you know, their religious kingdom out here in the Great Basin, but they didn't, they were very poor and they didn't have a way to trade with other settlers who were crossing through Salt Lake City right. to go on to California and Oregon and different places like that. So they didn't, they they had their own currency, they had their different things, but they didn't have a means to trade with other people. And then also they were building the temple the Salt Lake Temple, which is a very iconic structure in Salt Lake, and they didn't really have anything to do that. So they were kind of in a pickle. Well, here comes here comes Chief Walker saying, well, I, I was told to give you some gold. And they're like, oh, well, great. We actually kind of need some of that. And so, and here's where, you know, you could all say this is, this is myth and this is, you know, old stories or whatever. But eventually it came to the point where, they agreed on a certain person who would go and retrieve gold from these sacred caves where the treasures of his ancestor were. And it eventually became a guy named Thomas Rhodes. And where, where we, where this isn't, uh, where this isn't um, legend anymore is it was known when Thomas Rhodes would leave Salt Lake city. It was written in the papers, Thomas Rhodes, brother Rhodes is leaving to go get some gold. He would leave with uh, empty pack horses and two or three weeks later, he would come back into Salt Lake City and he had all this gold. He wasn't gone long enough to mine it, but he just had these bags of gold. And there's documents that say, okay, um, uh, Brother Rhodes has turned in such and such amount of gold to the, to the treasury. And then, so, I mean, there's all these historical accounts of him going and coming back with the gold. And so, you know, people can say, oh, well, it's just old stories or whatever, but you have this clash of history that turned into myth, but then became history again. Because, yeah, um, Thomas Rhodes, he wasn't gone long enough to mine the gold. He was basically, because he went as by horseback, as quite a ways away from Salt Lake City, he would go and then come back just with these bags of, you know, gold. And... So that that went on for a few years when, you know, while while the the Mormons really needed the the cash and they, you know, made their the statue that's on top of the temple, the Angel Moroni statue, he's covered with gold and all that stuff. But then, you know, when the economy became more normalized and the church had enough money to do their own thing, then it it stopped. You know, they didn't need it anymore. And so Thomas Rhodes didn't go anymore. And 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 then now it's kind of faded into myth. And to me, it's just so fascinating to have, we have this blank spot in the middle where we know for a fact that, that they left 
Tenochtitlan with gold. And then it's the mists of, you know, it's the mists of time. But then in the 1840s, you have some gold being taken from these caves. And that's a proven fact. And so, yeah, what happened in the middle, that's legend, I guess, and conjecture. But it's it's fascinating. And so, yeah, I mean, like I said, as a kid hearing these stories, I'm like, that gold could just be right over that hill, you know, because <laughs> we're up in the, in the mountains, like, because nobody knows where it's at. And you, there's other stories out there where prospectors are trying to find the gold and, and the, the Ute people chase them off their land or they, or they think they find something and then they, they utterly forget where it was and they can't find it the next day. Like their mind was wiped and you just have all these, all these stories out there. I mean, there's, there's books and documentaries filled with people who've tried to find it. And just, it's like, it's cursed. Like they, the, the people who want to find it for their own gain can't. And so just fascinating stuff. It's so crazy. I, I guess that explains the link with like, I mean, you have, I've seen like s- settlements in Mexico, of like Mormons living out there as well. I guess that's kind of like, the connection you know from then but like i've seen them out there as well you know like a lot of people like white people and just like are you from mexico like no we're from the states but you know like we live out here and i'm like why or like you know like how it's like oh you know we live over here in this whatever blah 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 and it's like it's just like a weird place that you would find mormon people like out in the middle of nowhere in mexico and it's just like why do you guys live out here (laughs) oh i always thought that was funny but i mean now i can kind of see connect the dots as to maybe that's probably why you know that 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 sort of thing happens you know from back then but um where does the whole montezuma's revenge thing come because i know i'm thinking of another montezuma's revenge and if anybody's actually been to mexico you would you know you know what we're talking about but that actually comes from something where did that you know that whole thing start well i think i think it's probably like a playful way you know, Montezuma's revenge is when you uh, drink the water, right? And you right. get sick. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's why. That's why they say drink the coke down there. But the oh, Mexican coke in the glass bottles is the best. The best, yep. the best ever. But um, I, I, I can't remember if Montezuma, Montezuma cursed. He, he, if he cursed the Spanish or not. If there's some, gosh, I should know that. But I mean, it, it is interesting. Um, when some of the Spanish were fleeing, uh, when the Aztecs mounted a little bit of a, a little bit of a resistance after Montezuma died, uh, some of the Spanish soldiers were fleeing, but they had their arms full of gold and they were trying to get through the swamps. And had they dropped their heavy loads of gold, or those who did drop their heavy loads of gold were able to escape. But those who wouldn't let go of their gold, the Aztecs were able to catch them and kill them. And so I always think of that. That's that's quite an interesting parable in our own lives about, you know, being too greedy or being too uh, stuck to our things. But but yeah, I think uh, I could be wrong, but, I, you know, the Montezuma's revenge, that's kind of a playful way of just saying, yeah, if you're not from here, the water might make you sick. But It's true. It's, it's true all over the place. I mean... Yeah, you, you go to Mexico, you make sure you drink the bottled water um, that was overseas. 
the Middle East as well for a while, and it's 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 true out there as well. Um, it's it seems to be kind of all over the place. Um, oh, so you were you were in the Middle East? Yeah, yeah. So did you ever see camel spiders over there? Yeah, I did actually. Yeah, oh, those things are terrifying. They're, they're pretty big. It's it's kind of. Um, I mean, I know for a while back, like in I want to say twenty. 10 2011 was kind of the time i was out there but um before then like when like 9 11 happened and all the troops started going out there um for a long time you would see like on the internet like pictures of giant camel spiders eating like dogs or rather like birds and stuff and i i never saw anything that big um but yeah i mean they're pretty big they're just kind of rolling around out there in the middle of the desert um for a lot of the guys if you were were sleeping out like in the desert or whatever you kind of have to sleep in your sleeping bags tied up um make sure that when you go to sleep you check your boots in the morning check all your gear because a lot of a lot of guys would have them like in their boots and stuff um so yeah you gotta be real careful because they're out there running around in in the desert too it's it's real weird i mean you just see things kind of like running around the desert like on the floor and it's like what is that and then you see and it's like a giant spider you know whatever now now i don't know <laughs> it's not a good thing it's pretty yeah crazy. one of the cops that i know he a lot a lot of cops also did military service too and he told one of the guys told me about somebody in his unit tried to shoot a camel spider but ended up shooting himself in the foot <laughs> That's not good. i think it surprised him so bad he's like what <laughs> shot yeah. up with his rifle and ended up getting his own foot but. it's definitely i mean obviously if you're not used to seeing something like that it's terrifying obviously but it's just like so i mean i can only imagine what i've never been to the rainforest but from the stories you hear there's like spiders that are even bigger but um you know like here in the states if it's not a tarantula and even if it's not a big one it's you don't see anything like that here um but out there it's just like normal i mean yeah, yeah it's, uh, it's, I wouldn't care to see one of those. <laughs> no, no, especially like in the middle of the night or something. That's the worst. Like you know, when you're trying to sleep and you feel something. I, yeah, no thanks. Let's <laughs> not do that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. No, yeah, it's so. Is there any any other works maybe like in the plans for another book maybe or something into the topic as well, or did you kind of is that whole thing kind of done and over with? Yeah, I I think probably my next book will be a follow up to my fingerprints and phantoms book. Um, just get get some more cool stories. I've heard some interesting stuff <laughs> since that book has come out. I think, yeah, my my book, The Lost Mine, deals. I mean, it's a fictional story, but it deals with you know the lost Montezuma's lost treasure and in the Uinta Mountains and everything. And then I yeah I wrote an article for Ancient American Magazine about it. So. Yeah, I mean, I think as far as research goes, I've probably, you know, gone as far as I'm going to go on it. But I just, I love it. I mean, it's actually, the Montezuma's Lost Treasure and the and the, the idea that it's somewhere up in the wind is, that's, that's kind of my all-time favorite, just legend, you know, especially since there's so much, so much validity to it. Like, that something happened, you know, and like, one of the documentaries I watched on, montezuma's lost treasure and he went to the mountains and everything the the forest service was on there saying oh no there couldn't be 
there couldn't be gold in, in the Uinta Mountains. The geology's wrong and everything. And no, oh, no, there's nothing out there. No, nothing to see here. Nothing to see here, people. And it's like, but but we have these historical accounts of, of people leaving Salt Lake City. Like it was in the, the newspaper, the Deseret News. And he would leave and he would come back and he had the gold. And where like, where did it come from if it wasn't there? And it's it's so interesting, you know, you're... The name of your podcast, you know, Truth Defender. There, there's so many interesting facts and 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 truth out there that, for whatever reason, the mainstream researchers and media just they they want to squash it. And 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 to me, it's like something happened. The gold, like you can look up if you're in Salt Lake City, you can look up and see the Angel Moroni statue on top of the temple, and he's covered with gold. That came from somewhere. <laughs> like, they yeah. just, like. <laughs> Like you know, I, I don't know. So I, but I, I love. It's my favorite legend. I mean, legend slash. I mean, I, you know, it's part legend, but there's so much truth about it. I, I, but yeah, as far as probably researching or writing more about that topic, I've kind of probably come as far as I can go. But that, that'll be to my dying day the thing that just I just love to think about it. And maybe it's that that takes me back to being a 12 year old boy around the campfire roasting a marshmallow with. All right. Do they, do they still have like any, I guess like expeditions maybe locally or, or has there any ever been anything like that to where they go out maybe like, you know, the mountains looking for it. Like, like, Oh yeah. Yeah. People, people are up there all the time. And uh, there's, there's a lot of lost mine legends all over the West. And I mean, there's, oh, what's the, there's some mine in Arizona that supposedly lost it. Like every year people die out looking for it. I can't remember. Like, I think just this last summer, some people died. So the, the thing about, you know, this possible Montezuma's lost treasure is it is, it's probably depending on where you might put it, it is on you reservation land or very close. So it's not like anybody can just go looking around and finding it because I mean, that's, that's part of the, the, the story about it is that the people know what's there and they're the keepers of it. They protect it. Right. And so, yeah, you, there's people always out there looking. I mean, there's one, there's, like I said, there's several documentaries out there um, on YouTube and different stuff. Like, and one of them, there's there was this bar in Vernal, Utah, that was full of prospectors, and they were all wanting to find that. <laughs> like, there's, I mean, it, that 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 legend is still alive and well. Like, people are out there kind of looking for it. But yeah, there's it is protected, and and it's it's you know if you look at the kind of what what Chief Walker said, you know that 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 gold does not belong to man; it belongs to God. And it's only supposed to be used for good purposes. And if you don't have a righteous purpose for it, then you're not going to find it. And that was all, that was always part of the, their legend. And it was always part of, um, you know, from, from him, even back to his forefathers, that was, that was what they, what they thought about it. So, but yeah, it's, it's up there. Something's up there. Yeah. Which is a good rule. And we, the last thing we need is, Greedy people with bad intentions having more money. <laughs> it's it's yeah. like the last thing we need. Well, and, and, you know, I guess we go back to, you know, what happened to those Spanish soldiers who wouldn't drop 
drop their gold and we're killed. I mean, that's we, we all, you know, we are not we are not material beings. I mean, we 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 we're not happy when we are so overcome with greed and materialism and different things. I mean, we're never going to reach higher levels of understanding or consciousness or whatever and for so focused on riches so i mean yeah it it, it is it, it is an interesting metaphor for all of us right definitely yeah it's definitely interesting to think about you know where it is and hopefully you know maybe someday somebody finds it and does something good with it but until then it's it's probably better that it's not found <laughs> yeah yeah, absolutely. No, sir. Um, so I, so I, what we can do is, can you let everybody know where they can actually find your books? So they, they can go in and buy those as well. Yeah, so all my books are on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and you just search my name, Paul Ramosh, uh, the three different books that I've written are just available on Amazon. And that's probably the easiest place to get them. So the book that specifically deals with Aztecs is called The Lost Mine. Uh, and so, you know, if that's the one, but the the, uh, the first book, The Lost the Lost Stones, that has to deal with a lot of the archaeology of ancient North America, the mounds and different things up there. And so that, that's also a fictional book, but, you know, deals with true archaeology stuff there. And yeah, and then the law or the fingerprints and phantoms that's the true stories of cops and csis who've had ghostly or strange encounters definitely have to have you back on for that one because um we definitely do all kinds of creepy stuff on here as well ghosts and all, you know all kinds of things so that's definitely up our alley as well um, so we'll definitely have to schedule something uh soon for you to come back on that one <laughs> i'd love to be my pleasure absolutely um and is there anywhere on social media that you have where people can follow your work maybe because I know I find you on Facebook, but. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not the biggest social media person, but I do have Facebook pages for the lost stones, the lost mine and fingerprints and phantoms. So if you want to shoot me a message out on, you know, if your listeners out there want to shoot me a message, yeah. uh, The lost stones, Facebook, the lost minds and fingerprints and phantoms. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll have all those uh, links down below as well as the books on Amazon as well. We'll link those in the show notes as well for everybody. Um, but sir, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you coming on enlightening us about the Aztecs as well. It was extremely interesting. Um, but like I said, we'll definitely have to have you back on so we can go ahead and talk about those ghost stories as well. Um, I have a few of my own as well. If you <laughs> go ahead and shoot. I would love to hear them because yeah, the military is in the same boat. You're out at night, you're in strange places, you deal with death. I mean, it's all kind of the same or two sides of the same coin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to hear your stories. Absolutely. So we'll get those on over. Um, like I said, I appreciate your time as well. Um, we'll have you back on as well for that. Um, and then for everybody else, uh, when it comes to the books and things like that, I'll have all those linked in the show notes as well. Um, if you guys want to catch us on the go, like I mentioned before, you guys can catch us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, as well as iHeartRadio at Truth Defender Podcast. Um, if you guys aren't already subscribed, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button for us, as well as the like button and the bell icon so you don't miss shows as they come out. Um, we're going to be having a few other guests here within the next couple of weeks as well. I know it's kind of been scattered, um, but things have been kind of hectic lately. Uh, we had that whole 
thunderstorm out here in Texas. Um, so we were kind of struggling to do that for about a week. Um, finally got up and running, started a new job as well. So that's kind of been crazy. Uh, I've been super busy with school also. So it's just kind of been getting it in where I can fit it in. So um, that'll be kind of happening here for the next few months as well. Um, but like I mentioned, you can hit us up on social media. I'll have all those linked down below, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, 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 and Rumble as well. Um, we have a Discord, which I'll have linked down below. If you guys have any questions for myself or our guests, uh, or you have any kind of recommendations for guests in the future, you can go ahead and shoot us an email at thetruthdefender1776 at gmail.com. We really appreciate you guys stopping back in, listening to this show as well. I'll be looking out for a couple more shows here with, at the end of the month. Uh, we really appreciate you guys. You guys stay safe out there. Stay blessed. And as always, stay frosty. <laughs>